Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You're listening to a special edition of The Economist Asks for International Women's Day. I'm Anne McElvoy. On current trends, it's going to take 202 years for women to get the same economic opportunities as men. The key to closing that gap might well be education. Its returns are immense. For every additional year of education, women are less likely to experience child marriage, more likely to work and to be better paid for that work. The World Bank estimates that secondary schooling almost doubles a woman's lifetime earnings. Going on to university or further study can almost triple them. So this International Women's Day, we're asking, is girls' education the great leap forward for feminism? I put that question to a panel of six formidable women convened by the Queen's Commonwealth Trust in London today. The Trust is an international network supporting young leaders in their communities around the world. Beside me on the panel was a figure in the spotlight daily for any pronouncement that she makes about women's roles. In her case, a leading royal one. Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. She was joined by Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia and Chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, along with the award-winning musician and activist Annie Lennox. She's founder of The Circle, a global NGO that champions women's rights. With us too were chris Ann Jarrett, founder of Let Us Learn, which helps young immigrant women in Britain to access education. Our final two guests were Angeline Muramira, Executive Director of the Campaign for Female Education, CAMFED in Africa, and Adwa Obwa, supermodel and founder of Girls Talk, a forum for girls to talk about the issues that matter to them, including mental health. And Angeline began by sharing her own experiences of the transformative power of schooling. I am an advocate for women and education because I deeply and personally understand the excruciating pain of being excluded but also the transformative power of education and the opportunities that are there when you collaborate with others who care about the issues. Um, I was destined to drop out of school uh, at the end of primary school because my parents could not afford the cost of education. Um, We were so poor that I recall getting my primary school results the best that anybody could get. And instead of celebrating, I broke down and wept. I cried, I grieved for the aspirations and the dreams that were snatched away from me at such a tender age. But I was one of the lucky ones because uh, Comfort arrived in my community and supported me through school. I say um, I was one of the lucky ones because even today, as we celebrate International Women's Day, there are 52.2 million girls out of school in sub-Saharan Africa. That is a crisis. Um, I know personally girls across villages who are desperate and yearning 
for an education. And without an opportunity, those girls resign to exploitative relationships, to exploitative jobs, to stay in school, just to keep their hold on education. Girls excluded from education are invisible. And invisible girls are powerless. They are powerless in the face of hunger. They are powerless over their bodies. And they're trapped in a cycle, vicious cycle of, of poverty. But I also know the transformative potential in education. Together with young women that were also supported through School by Comfort, we founded the Comfort Alumni Network, Kama. And together, we are turning and supporting other invisible girls, making them visible, making them recognizable and celebrated. So I am a relentless advocate for women and education because I understand way too personally the cost and pain of being excluded, but also the potential therein. Chrisanne, what you're doing is making an impact in perhaps an area that had not been thought about enough at all at any level, and that is migration in a, a world of big migration trends and access to education. But that also takes us to your story. Tell us a bit about yes, that. Yes, so um, I was actually born on the sunny island of Jamaica. I spent the first um, few years of my life until I was eight um, with um, my grandmother, who usually uh, sat me on her lap and fed me mangoes. Um, and so I, I think I lived a very sheltered life, and I migrated to the UK at the age of eight to be with my mom. And I, I've grown up in Hackney ever since. I went to a school called Clapton Girls Academy, and our motto was arrive with a dream and leave with a future. And I really internalised that to the extent where um, myself and my debating team we went to the Hackney Town Hall and we fervently debated for the breaking down of the glass ceiling. Uh, and it was in 2013 that I actually questioned this arrival of the dream and leave of the future because I'd worked so hard. And, you know, as head girl of my school, everyone is expecting me to go off and do great things. And that's when my migration story became relevant and actually had implications for me moving onwards. So I got a place at LSE to study law, uh, but I filled out my UCAS, everything got, was fine. And student finance, I was being told that actually, despite me living here for more than half my life, I was being classified as international student in a country I'd called home. Mm -hmm. And so I had to take a forced gap year. Um, my, my mom, uh, as a single parent, she couldn't pay the £17,000 um, to make me go to university and tuition fees for the next three years. And in that time, I started to meet other young people that were also affected, and I recognised that, actually, I was one of 2,000 young migrants every year that was barred from student finance and couldn't go off to the next chapter of their life, everyone believing that education is the stepping stone to success. Um, and so I founded Let Us Learn out of a need to get a solution not only for myself, but also to challenge um, what, what was going on because again a lot of things with migration and you know policy seems to be a lot of people are held unaccountable and so we wanted to hold them accountable um, so let us learn what was formed with the idea of challenging government policy and um, of our thousand activists um, we have you know 25 um, core members 75% of which are young women and I think I'm, I'm very keen to advocate for women's rights because I've recognized the the, the importance of intersectionality and how that complicates, um, you know, the struggle for e equality. Not only are you a female, but you're also of a certain race, of a certain ethnicity, and that really does complicate the struggle. Very interesting. We should come, come back to that. 
had such a lot of questions flood in, and we've, we've picked uh, some across a number of areas which we, we hope will cover at least uh, some of the breadth of this subject. So uh, the first one is from Scarlett Curtis uh, via social media. What can we do to address the fact that one in 10 girls in the UK doesn't have access to affordable menstrual products? Right. Didn't need to say a word. What <laughs> 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 a relief. Uh, Adwa, subject very close to your heart. Um, so myself and the Girls Talk team have really been standing behind period poverty this year and last um, because, you know, for far too long we as women have been made to feel ashamed about something natural that happens to our bodies and there is so much stigma and taboo um, energy surrounding that. But what was shocking when I started working with the period, period poverty movement was to realise that it wasn't just happening um, overseas, it was also happening on our doorsteps. And that was completely shocking to realise that one out of ten um, girls in the UK are not, haven't got access to sanitary products and sanitary care and, in, in, in conclusion, aren't being able to go to school, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, what I really wanted to say, there, it's just devastating and it's really... Uh, it's put me in a place of realising the privilege that I hold and how I've never for a second thought about not being able to go to the shop and buy tampons or sanitary products. It has never crossed my mind that that wouldn't be something that I could do. So what we're doing, you know, Girls Talk is really standing behind everything um, that period poverty is striving for. And I just wanted to say to the audience and to all of you that there are a few things that you can do you can speak to your MPs, um, you can donate to period, period poverty movement, you can, um, you know, one of the most important ones, you can speak amongst yourselves, you can speak to your mums, your children, to your family members, and that in turn, you know, this is something that we really stand behind in Girls Talk, that will, we need to continue that conversation, we are part of this, and it shouldn't be something that we kind of brush under the carpet as a conversation that needs to keep on going. Yeah. And, um, and another one is donate. You know, there are loads of places where you can donate sanitary products to um, girls that don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, yeah, it's just something that I feel very, like, strongly about. And, you know, what we can do now is we're trying to get, you know, free sanitary products to all girls, um, in school, um, so. Yeah. Experience is just—we can all sort of probably speak to this in some in some regard. Yeah. But I think you know, in developing countries as well, and this is where I had done some some work in India a few years ago with this great organization called Minamahil, a small grassroots um, working in slum communities, trying to destigmatize what menstruation means for a lot of these young girls and women, but also giving them the access to be able to get the products, but in the same construct, having these women sort of mobilized to be able to set up microfinance, to sell these pads and other things that are needed to other women within the community. So again, it feels like it's one issue, but it ends up solving so many, because when you see how many girls are hindered and taken out of school simply because they're ashamed of going through that transition in their life, or because no one wants to talk about it, or because they don't have what they need and they're using old rags, literally, right, which then, of course, is propelling disease and so many other mm -hmm. symptoms um, that come from this. I think 
at the end of the day, if we are doing our part to just normalize the conversation, that's the first step because, again, this is 50% of the population that's affected by something that can also end up creating the most beautiful thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's sort of a, a strange one that it's ended up become so stigmatized, but I think to remember that it's also in our own communities that that's happening, the only way we shift that is by really talking mm-hmm. about it, which is why the work you're doing with Girls Talk is so important. I'm going to move uh, along, just make sure we get our our questions covered. But, of course, panel, feel very free to reach back to something in your your answers if you feel you you really would be very frustrating to leave without having said something. Just, hell, just say it, right? Um, So the the next question, I think, goes to Annie Lennox, and it's from Holly Bantleman, founder of Project Period. So my question is around what we can do when we're driving efforts on gender equality in the UK to ensure that we're actually addressing this for women everywhere in the world. Well, that's, that's, thank you. That's a great question. That's absolutely fantastic. Just as we've been speaking about period poverty and thinking that it's actually, you know, we feel that we are so resourced in Western countries. And, <laughs> and yet in this country, it sounds, you're talking about something that sounds Victorian. I start to feel so sad for my mother, for my grandmother, for my great-grandmother, thinking about the things that they must have had to endure in silence, you know. It isn't only just now, it's all those generations that went back. But um, look, you know, the issue of women and girls' rights must be a global issue for all. And the issue, we, we want to put a word to it, and feminism is a fantastic word, but so many people avoid it, and they don't quite know what to do with it. Men especially, they're quite nervous around it, I've, I've noticed over the years. <laughs> so, Bell Hooks has created this incredible term, global feminism. It creates a wonderful connection point for, from the resourced Western countries to everywhere around the world. And you, said, you talked about invisibility, the invisible girl. We must make this invisible girl visible. And how do we do that? By terminology, by discussion. So I am pushing, and I, I'm not, this isn't just me, it has to be collective. One person can do something, but we must do it all collectively. The term global feminism can be used by boys and men. It is an umbrella term. Everyone can come underneath this term to connect the facts. Let, let's just be clear that one in three girls and women have experienced sexual or physical violence in their lifetime is unacceptable, Right that two out of three of the 757 million adults who are unable to read and write are women. Unacceptable. 603 million live in countries where domestic violence isn't considered a crime. Now look, we can do something about this. Collect, collectively, talk, start talking. Change the zeitgeist. So let's start with this label, global feminism. Let's endorse it. Let's encourage all of us from Western countries to so-called developing countries Let's, let's use it. Let's, let's go forward. This is a very exciting time for feminism. Hussain, <laughs> you, you touched on uh, challenges for women of colour and young women of colour in the UK. Let's look at the, you know, just the, the UK and the, the context for, for a moment. I mean, do you believe it's a, a conversation that needs to be treated slightly separately? It has a different depth or texture to the feminist conversation overall. And should we just be more frank about that? No, I think it should be definitely included. I think a lot of the times with International Women's Day or just the movement in general, we tend to just want to 
follow one movement or focus on one idea when actually the fight for equality is much more complex than that. And when I mentioned intersectionality, that's one of the complexities that we actually have to tackle. And we have to develop really dynamic social activism to try and tackle those things. And, you know, have the people with lived experience that are vessels of power to, to lead this. And within my organization, actually, Let Us Learn, we're going through a transitional phase now. We've recognized, again, there's so much layers to this one issue that we've actually you know we're focusing on education but also focusing on policy uh, and Dami and I have been who's here uh, will be co-directors of a new charity called We Belong and what our aim is to ensure that you know young people especially young women are involved in the designing uh, and you know the implementation of our policies especially within our governance structures. I know ma'am that you've discussed this often with your own background and in mind your own mixed race heritage and that you once had difficulty when you were presented with a census and felt that the boxes mm. just didn't make sense to, to you. Now that of course you have that experience in America, you now have your time here in the UK, do you think that women of colour face particular hurdles and UK or America, are they very similar or are they rather different? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think, again, going back to the idea of how this is global, it's that we're all experiencing, in some ways, a different version of the same thing. So in many cases, that can be colorblind, and you are marginalized simply by being a woman. In other cases, there's an added layer of race, um, social demographic. I mean, there's so many key elements at play there. And I think at the end of the day, what is equalizing for all of us is to understand that just as women, full stop, as you say here, um, <laughs> there... <laughs> I would say period, but it would be nuanced in the context of this panel. You um, read my mind. Yes, exactly. But I think at the end of the day, as women, you know, and as people, bringing men back into that conversation, that it really is about the injustices that we are all experiencing on so many different levels. And to be able to say, as a united force, how are we going to tackle those? And so I think, you know, again, you can focus on the specificity of it, but at the end of the day, it is a global problem that we are all dealing with and that at the same time you can see it as a global challenge that we are all working to solve. We'll stay on the subject I think of of men and perhaps also men and and boys and just going a little bit deeper into perhaps I'm just going to sort of put a finger around say a sort of unease that still seems to surround International Women's Day maybe but also the idea of feminism and might it take something away for men and I think Johannes Imbasalu is uh, joining us by video let's hope what can we do as a global community to engage more boys and men in the fight for gender equality mm. is this about changing the narrative for men about what it is to be masculine thank you love to hear a couple of uh, thoughts from the panel on that. I'm afraid we're working you very uh, hard. Uh, Your Royal Highness, this one goes to you. You know, it's interesting because they're not separate conversations. And I think the idea of feminism and whatever stigmatization is surrounded just in that word in and of itself, to Annie's point, making it global feminism changes that conversation immediately. But for men to understand they can be feminists as well. I mean, I think when we talk about gender stereotypes shifting, what it means for to be masculine, what it means to be feminine. You know, I've said for a long time, you can be feminine and a feminist. You can be masculine, and I think in terms of masculinity, you understand that your strength includes knowing your vulnerabilities, and your sense of self and security, your confidence, comes in knowing that a woman by your side, not behind you, 
is actually something that you shouldn't be threatened about, but as opposed to that, you should feel really empowered in having that additional support, that this is really about us working together. That's what gender equality means for me, and having men part of that conversation to say, there's nothing threatening about a woman coming up to the same level. It's our safety in numbers. This is our power and our strength as a team. So, and that's gender neutral, if you really think about it. So I, I, I hope that men are part of the conversation. My husband certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't let him off. <laughs> I think I'll go to Annie. I mean, labels can be so boring, you know, and limiting, but labels are also so important because, mm -hmm. they, as I said earlier, they make things visible. So I, I love to think that men can be welcome in the feminist movement and they can adapt the term global feminist and they can say quite comfortably, oh, I'm a global feminist. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask the men, the gentlemen here, would you be comfortable, put your hands up by describing yourselves as global? Yes. Yes. What I loved was the kind of 45 degree hands. <laughs> Yes, Adwa. Yeah, no, we, I and my, myself and my Girls Talk team really are standing behind this idea of, like, you know, what you're saying. Now I know a term, global feminism, and including, like, men and boys, and it's something we're really taking seriously at the moment. Um, we have probably, like, 50-50 men now on, our, on the panel I have mm. that speak about um, mental health, that speak about sexual abuse, and I just think it's so important because... It's, it's so, you know, we talked about the invisible woman and also, you know, it's important to, to kind of bring, shine light on the invisible man wow. who doesn't mm. feel like yes. they have the space to talk about what's going on in their life. And I think what's great is by us having men talking from their point of view, it is, it is bringing so many men into our community that mm. want to talk about these things, that have always wanted to talk about these, mm. but have been silenced because of... Um, the label, masculinity, all these different labels, and um, haven't feel felt comfortable, I mm -hmm. suppose. And that's yeah. So we're really doing that a lot. Uh, Julia, in the in the news in in your um, home country, original home country, Australia, is the prime minister sort of sending a bit of a message about International Women's Day. I think his, his message was, well, you know, you've got to be careful this doesn't take away from men. Now, obviously, that went down like a ton of bricks <laughs> with this audience. But I would guess he said it for a reason and that there is a feeling sometimes that that is the way that some people... It's amused Annie, anyway. Um, <laughs> that is a way that sometimes people feel about it. What did you make of it? Uh, well, I prefer not to involve myself in Australian domestic politics any longer. <laughs> I think, it's a bit late for that, I, I though, think, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I think decoding our current Prime Minister might be a job for others, not for me. Mm. Uh, but I did want to say on this global feminism, um, you know, new title uh, that Annie has christened, uh, we've done some global research with Ipsos Mori on what people are thinking out there right around the world. And it comes out of that research very strongly that men are actually looking for some differences in their lives. Uh, when asked if a man stays home and cares for children, is that emasculating? Mm. By a large majority, they say, no, no, it's not. 
And they also say by a majority that they want employers to offer them more flexibilities so that they can do a better job of caring for their kids. Now, actually, when you wrap all of that up, what they're looking for um, is the gender equality movement to succeed so that they can get out of the, the boxes and the stereotypes that they're currently put in. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can you know, talk about that, how gender equality gives everybody more options, more choices, then it can be more inclusive globally. Mm. I just can't let this go, as you can tell, and I just want you to, to ask, very, very briefly, because we must move on, but the, the, the Duchess, there's still, the reason that I sort of cite the discomfort is that if you look at the reaction to, to someone in a position like your own mum, who goes out there and actually just uses the feminism word very naturally in conversation, you can sometimes find yourself with headlines saying, it's all gone a bit trendy, it's gone a bit woke, and not in a good way. <laughs> uh, what's your response to that? Is it water off a duck's back, or does it well, well sensitivity within no, no, I mean, well, what's that? You don't read them. Well, that's yeah. exactly, yeah. everyone knows. Yeah. I, I don't read anything. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> much safer that way. Um, but equally, I, that's just my own personal preference because I think, positive or negative, it can all sort to just feel like noise to a certain extent these days. Um, and so, as opposed to getting muddled with that, to focus on the real cause. So, for me, I think the idea of making the word feminism trendy. I, that doesn't make any sense to me personally, right? This is something that is going to be part of the conversation forever. And I think the more that we normalize it, you see that to the point of how men and boys should be part of the conversation, you know, specifically in developing countries, I think it would be impossible to not have boys, especially as part of this conversation, because picture how much courage it takes for a young girl in a small village where most of the girls haven't gone to school, and they are... So reaching out and doing whatever they can, walking miles to be able to get an education. Now, if they go home and they are feeling marginalized by their younger brothers, older brothers, that their fathers, given the cultural context of where this may be, has a sense of his daughter's place in that home, then nothing's really shifting because there might be one day where she goes, you know what, I won't go to school. But if you have young boys as part of this conversation as well, you're moving the needle in a different way because they're not mimicking learned behavior that could be incredibly sabotaging for a young girl's potential. Because again, I think this is part of the education piece, not just for girls, but for boys and men to understand what we're talking about when we talk about feminism. Again, it's not just about girls going to school and becoming smart girls. It's knowing that those smart girls become influential women and that ends up changing the world for the better. interesting so we just need to just keep this moving along a little bit for, for pace um, and I think we have a, a question which goes to Julia Gard and it's from Professor Pauline Rose director of the Real Centre at Cambridge University. Pauline. Thank you I'm going to bring us back now to the girls and to the most <laughs> marginalised girls and ask the panel what how do you think support for the most marginalised girls can really stimulate lasting change for gender equality and in particular what can we learn from the wonderful NGO Camfed that we've already heard a little bit about thank you <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pauline, thank, thank you for the question, and I think we've already got a very visible demonstration, um, Angie, about the difference that CAMFED makes, and it's really sort of been the theme 
Uh, of course, we have to ensure every girl gets a great education, and CAMFED's done remarkable work uh, assisting 2.6 million girls to be educated. I'm also involved in the Global Partnership for Education. We do the big systems work to make sure governments in developing countries can offer strong education systems so girls and boys can be educated. And that's vitally important because it starts with an education, but it doesn't end there. And I think one of the things that CAMFED and the associated CAMA do so well is it's, yes, you get the skills from the education, but then you find your voice, then you find your empowerment, then you find a new way of being in the world, a new place, and then you can navigate the difficulties that are in that village or in that cultural context and emerge as a leader and an advocate for change. And unless we do that next bit, then we're always going to be saying, well, let's put the next generation of girls through school and the next generation of girls through school, but they're going to be coming out into the same old world. Uh, we want the future generations to be coming out into a better world and then play their role in improving it again. And so it goes. And I think CAMFED and CAMA and the work that Lucy Lake and Angie do is just remarkable in that regard. With perfect segue... We have uh, a, a question coming from Miranda Curtis, chair of, of Camford, and I think it, it's going to Angie. If we could just get the mic to the front, um, then we can follow straight on from that. Miranda, if Thanks you... very much. And indeed, Julia, that was the perfect um, introduction <laughs> to my question. We at Camford are very, very aware um, that the desire for social and economic empowerment is the primary driver behind the creation of this extraordinary network that we call CAMA. Angie, what changes have you seen in the past 20 years and what can we all in this room and elsewhere do to help accelerate the social and economic empowerment of young women? It was very interesting hearing everything that's being said about engaging and involving men. I come from that world where uh, Patriarchy states that uh, a woman's place is in the kitchen. Mm. Uh, full stop, not period. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, 20 years ago, we, we started the Comfort Alumni Network. I mentioned that earlier on, Kama. Uh, as young women, we had been supported through school by Comfort. We started it to be able to give other girls who were invisible the same opportunity that we got. That that was the motivation. It was that important to us. And I want to say that today, as I speak, uh, Kama is 120,000 members strong. <laughs> and uh, we are holding that ladder for other invisible girls to be able to be visible, to be able to be heard. And to think that we were the invisible girls that were on the brink of uh, child marriage, invisible girls that struggled with their period. I, I remember personally feeling very frustrated every time, that time of the month. And it just didn't have to do with the stigma around it. It had to do with the fact that I thought, where do I even, you know, where do I get the money to spare on this again? Why does it have to be always yeah. on the clock? So, you know, it's, it's 
those girls now joining up together is a powerful mm. movement for girls' education. And um, we are also paying it forward. You know, on average, every Kama member supports at least three other girls from their community through school. And that's the multiplier effect of education. And, you know, every single day, we not only support other children, we also advocate on issues that matter deeply to us, issues to do with youth unemployment, to do with child marriage. We advocate against that. And, you know, there is a rising constituency of Kama members. Please remember, we were so invisible and so desperate and so forgotten anyway. So there is this rising constituency of Kama members who are breaking into decision-making power hubs. You know, I think of young women like Hawa, who was the first ever woman in a community to be elected to the district assembly. Kama members like Fatima in Malawi, who now sits on the traditional chief's court as an advisor in a very patriarchal community, that's, that's a big, big deal. And I just also want to say that, you know, we are not alone. We, we rally with our communities hand on hand with men and boys because this matters for boys too. It matters for everybody in our community that our communities rise out of. It's not just about girls' education. It's about the regeneration of our communities. As Kama members prove that it's not just about us. We have transformed our, our communities. We have Kama members who are entrepreneurs, business owners, farmers, teachers, nurses. And that that personifies the potential that stays when you dismantle barriers to, to education for everybody. So I just want to be able to say that how do we accelerate this? This, this is an unprecedented opportunity and amazing potential. But it's not the fight for Kama alone. We all can do something about it. We welcome each and every one of you to join us on this campaign for girls' education on getting as many girls as possible the world over in school because it's not just about girls' education, it's about everything. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and isn't it interesting, I mean, for all of us, and I'm sure many in the room who've been advocating for, and in my case, reporting, researching girls' education for so many years, it felt for a while like it was a bit of a marginal sort of subject people didn't relish rushing up to you at a party and saying, how's that going? And, yeah, well, you know, look at the engagement that you, you brought to it. So thank you very much for that. Uh, a question for Chris and Jarrett from uh, Connie Hook, British TV presenter and writer, of course, but it's also going to spark thoughts I hope and trust from the rest of the panel as we move towards the end. Uh, Connie, where are you residing at the moment? There you are. I mean, it is such a complex subject, and we know there's loads of interdependent factors. But what, in the opinion of the panel, is the single biggest thing that's blocking progress for women and equality in today's world, a world with you know, broadcast media and social media... Uh, at a peak, you know, we've never known anything like it. Great, great question, I think. Uh, Chris, I'm going to um, go to you first. I think I'd refer to what I, I said previously about it's very difficult because it's such a complex issue and, you know, the fight for quality is not just... It's very dynamic. I don't think I could answer by saying there's one biggest thing that we should be focusing on. Um, but I was speaking at the UN last week and I was speaking about the importance of having a conveyor belt of new people leading and shaping different movements. And, and just within my organization in itself, we're really keen to ensure, other than the systemic change and changes to society and the ways of 
people thinking to have better outcomes for individuals. And because of that, we've really, uh, a lot of our campaigning has, or, or, you know, a lot of our movement has been built through peer-to-peer -peer recruitment and ensuring that not to giving the marginalized voice, they already have that voice, it's about activating that agency and leadership. So I think we shouldn't miss that out when we're trying to help people who are seen as victims of their situation. We should really try and empower them. Right, don't, don't hold back rest of the panel. You look like you're dying to come in there. Yeah, I think it was really interesting what you said about social media and broadcasting, but I think sometimes that can be quite detrimental for yes. in terms of yes. the block because I feel like something's happening, there's something that's missing. You know, we do the hashtags, we celebrate, we, we post, and then we don't, that, we don't, take, we don't yes. take that on into yes. our everyday lives. It's like, look, I'm supporting this, but am I really, am I living and breathing this want for change? And I think it's something that we really try and talk about um, with our girls. It's like carrying on this want, carrying on looking at the bigger p picture, um, understanding our privilege, looking, being... Being aware, just being, you know, awareness woke. rising, <laughs> yeah. awareness rising, yeah. and the messaging going to the people that can really yeah. enact the change, mm -hmm. the leadership in, in, in politics, that there is transparency, that there is absolute, you know, you have the NGO communities, and they're doing incredible work, they're transforming at a grassroots level, mm. amazing things can happen, there's tremendous potential, but they're held back, and I'll be frank, mm. by terrible corrupt pol political lack of leadership. I'll just must be frank about that. And so all of that potentiality just goes pouring down the drain. So we can talk and talk and talk and make a lot of white noise. But, in, but until those political leaders take full responsibility for what they have been put in power to do, then it's, we're still banging the drum. We're, this is the gap. This is mm. the question, truly. Yes, sir. We've been so positive this morning. I, I, I think a I little bit of blame is no bad thing, right? I'll just round it off by yes. saying that charitable organisations are terribly, terribly important. They do amazing work. But we cannot solve it alone by charit charity. It must be transformed into political, social change, a huge movement. So, Your Royal Highness, what's blocking progress for women and equality in today's world? Don't hold back. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, you don't say. Um, no, I mean, look, I think we've covered how important education is. That we know. That is one huge thing. The lack of access to education is, in my mind, the single largest hindrance to this equality that we are all seeking out. But then to your point of saying things like, you know, which I wouldn't have known, the idea that there's a headline saying feminism is a trendy word. That's not helpful either, right? So, I mean, I think when you look at all the different layers of the hindrances that are coming in, it starts on a really large level, the actual access that we're talking to, but also what that conversation is. We have a responsibility as well that if we're part of social media, if we're engaging in that way, that we are not just giving people more things to chat about, but actually something to do. Exactly. And that's why I yes. say, what's the call to action? action. A hashtag yeah. is not call enough, right? Exactly. So you say, great, you can make a donation. You could sponsor a girl, you know, with Minima Healer, through Queen's Commonwealth Trust, through so many of these organizations, with Cama, CamFed, to be able to say, this is a tangible thing that I can do that will enable this girl to stay in school for a year. That's something you can do. And I think oftentimes when we talk about themes like this that are so large, people just don't know where to begin. So give them something to do. Say, this will cost you so little and it will make the largest impact. But that is how we start to affect that no, change. It's because action. It's action. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Yeah
Molly's very good point. We haven't got time to dwell on it a lot. Just one, one thought, perhaps, again from you, ma'am, and then the rest of the panelists. Technology is a bit of a, a frenemy on this one. I was thinking I, I cover politics a, a lot in the rest of my life, and we've seen a lot of female MPs, but I think those women in public life generally coming out talking about the just extraordinary amounts of abuse and bile, 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 say vile, bile that they get through social media. I mean, do you, you know, do you think we need to just be much more active about this? And what should we do? The role in that in regard of to social media and basically the fact that we are you know, a lot of women who are prepared to step on into leadership positions. Chris Han will be a, a new generation of <laughs> yeah, that are facing that sort of thing. Yeah. Big questions there for the tech companies, big questions for all of us. No, of course. Look, I think, again, it's our responsibility. We make a choice in what we click on. We make a choice in what we read. We make a choice in what we engage in. That is our personal decision to not feed into negativity, right, to really sort of be more cause-driven and action-based. And, you know, for me, it's a, it's a tricky one because I'm not part of any of that. And, again, <laughs> as, as Adam knows, I don't look at you it. You never look at, say, Twitter. No. <laughs> Sorry, no. Um, you know, and I, for me, that is my personal preference, right? But I do read The Economist, um, <laughs> so I'll give you that one. Um, yes, you know, but in a job then. But again, looking, but looking at journalism that's really covering things that are going to make the impact, which we talked about uh, backstage. We were talking about the Tanzania, right, the article The Economist just did. So things like that that are really talking about how the role of women is shifting, changing, I think that's key. Focus your energy there yeah. and not on the stuff that is perhaps yeah. muddling it, you in other directions. It, it is overwhelming, mm. you know, it is overwhelming, but I don't think that should, should stop us. I heard um, Michelle Obama last year say an amazing thing. You know, there are so many things that are going on and we shouldn't, we're not necessarily, it'd be great if we were still here to like see all the changes that we're trying to make, but that shouldn't hinder us and stop us from continuing on mm. for the generations after Absolutely. us and the women after us. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, but it is overwhelming. I, I lie awake worrying about all the things. Yes. 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 Next generation about to happen next to you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get the last thoughts yeah, at the I other end of the panel. because I'm coming in. biggest mistakes ever is when I first started Lessons Learn. I was in an article came out in, in, in The Guardian and I'd run out of lecture and I started to read the comments. And that was the worst thing I've ever yeah, done. Yeah, and if that, that had, you know, I've, if I had internalised all those horrible opinions about yeah. something that I was doing that was so great, if I must say so myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's game, set and match, actually. <laughs> Angie, to you. Well, uh, I also just wanted to touch on the, you know, the biggest uh, blocker and everything. And... Her Royal Highness took the words from me. Because I wanted to say that one thing that I've seen that unlocks potential, unleashes uh, a positive tide is, is education. Because it allows even for the invisible people, people without a voice and people that would normally not be had to speak for themselves, is they also rally with others who champion, connect, and, you know, like, fund their work. Like, I think that's the whole idea with Queen's Commonwealth Trust, that it is about ensuring that we all rally together for the greater good in creating and making this world a, a better place. So I just want to be able to say education is fundamental because if you had engaged with me at the point where I was still in my village without opportunity, that power dynamic would have been totally different. So we need to respect and recognize the power of investing in education. And I want to go back to the issue around equity that it, it is important to ensure that we are engaging at the same level and education provides me with that opportunity, with the language, the tools, and the platform to be able to engage meaningfully. 
Julia. Very patient. Uh, no, no problems. Uh, uh, just, just a few quick thoughts. On, on the social media and the broadcast media, I absolutely agree that you can manage what you see. I never looked at my social media feed when I was Prime Minister. You couldn't afford to. I mean, the, the filth that was on it, you would never have got up in the morning. Um, so, uh, yes, we can do that, but I do genuinely think that... Uh, Traditional media, social media platforms need to step up to their responsibility to create safe spaces for women and to create equal coverage for women. Mm -hmm. And we've got bucket loads of research that shows even traditional media doesn't do that. So we've got to do more to make sure that women are fairly and properly represented mm -hmm. in the things that we read and see. Mm -hmm. And then, as someone who spent a life in public policy, I actually do believe the evidence matters. And one of the things that we haven't been hard-headed enough is, you know, taking the evidence about what works and advocating it. A lot of what is being done now is unfortunately in the feel-good space, the business that wants to have the mm -hmm. slogan, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. We need to go deeper than that and be demanding that people are doing things that really work. And uh, if I could uh, be so bold as to add to your list, I think uh, individually you can vote for political parties mm -hmm. that have policies that are speaking to women and doing things that support women and gender equality. You can buy from businesses that are doing real things to support gender equality. You can make your views known when those in the media are not representing you and instead are representing things that confine women's roles. We can all do that. Got to uh, to move on our way. So haiku like last uh, uh, thoughts. Uh, presenters must always chance their arm. I mean, apart from everything good that you're doing here in the public realm, what treat are you going to give yourselves on International Women's Day? Who'd like to have a go at that? <laughs> what treat? You've earned a treat. it. A treat. A treat. That's a, str um. a, str a strange <laughs> English way of saying you can do something nice for yourself yeah. on International Women's Day. You know I what am, I mean. I am celebrating and doing a collaboration with Boiler Room. I don't know. And we are celebrating, um, not, we're celebrating musicians. Um, we're going to be, I'm going to be dancing the night away with Georgia nice. Smith and Little Sims and... and <laughs> oh, yeah, we're all up for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lots of women that inspire me. Just about 200 of our friends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, turn up, baby. Other end of the panel, anyone got... Uh, I'm, are they like I'm flying to New York tonight and I'm certainly going to toss down that glass of champagne <laughs> before I get on the flight. <laughs> Spoken um, from the heart. Um, I'm here right now, yeah. but also one of the things that you don't get to see that's invisible is that I've got 120,000 Kama sisters just rooting and singing for me. So we're going to have a party. that quite far ahead but I'm actually heading to the South Bank later to be a part of the Women on the Move award ceremony. I'm going to be surrounded by amazing women doing amazing things so that's my self-care. Mm. <laughs> self-care self would have been the more appropriate. <laughs> self-care and care well, for others. Well, well, <laughs> it's very important to have some self-care because actually a lot of people like myself, you know, advocates and activists get burned out so I say that I'm slightly singed on the edges but <laughs> still going strong. Um, I'm off to the WOW Festival uh, after this, which is going to be fantastic. I'm going to be talking with Jude. I'm going to be in conversation with another audience. And, and I'm just thrilled that today, on International Women's Day, Apple Music have given us the opportunity to create a short film that explains, about, it explains the reasons why global feminism 
is an absolute must for the future zeitgeist. Last word, Royal Highness, self-care, as I now call treating myself. You're still treating yourself to some rather fabulous shoes. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I think the the treat in and of itself is being able to be here and be with these incredible women on the panel. I mean, that is such a gift on this day. And then separate from that, the women in my life um, that I want to celebrate, I will continue to send some love to today. But also the men, uh, you know, who are championing all of us as part of this journey is great. And then I'll put my feet up because that's a deserved <laughs> treat, especially at this stage of pregnancy. <laughs> Thank you so much, my fantastic panel, for being so open, so convivial, and taking on some pretty tough questions there, but with great aplomb and goodwill. Thank you so much for coming along today. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And of course, we want to know what you think. What are the biggest obstacles to bridging the gender gap? How can they be overcome? And what were your own experiences? Write to us at radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts too. I'm Anne McElvoy saying goodbye to our panel, Royals and Commoners. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.